Uh, again, I don't have a particular passage for you to turn to this evening. Uh, getting a little more teachy than preachy as we talk again about the covenants. Two weeks ago, we learned about a covenant given to King David in 2 Samuel 7, which we called the Davidic Covenant. In itself, this covenant uh, is a true blessing to David, promising him a perpetual presence through his children upon the throne of Israel. But the promise goes much, much deeper than just David having his children on the throne. It's much bigger than that. And David recognized this. He recognized that this promise didn't just mean his children would stay on the throne. It had messianic implications. It had to do with Messiah himself. And last time we were together, we considered of the, of the kingdom covenants, I, I listed five kingdom covenants, and we considered the first three of those five kingdom covenants. Remember, as we discussed the kingdom covenants, there are many more covenants that God makes with man in scriptures. We think of the covenant that he makes with Noah. We think of the covenant that he makes with Adam. And in fact, the Noahic covenant, the one he makes with Noah, is really to the entire earth, right? And with himself. He makes a covenant that he would not, again, destroy the earth with a flood. And then he puts the rainbow in the sky. And in fact, the scriptures say the rainbow is a reminder, not to us, of the promise, but to God. God said, when I see the rainbow, I will remember my promise. I will remember my covenant. Isn't that interesting? That God put the rainbow in the sky and he specifically said that he put it there for himself. Yes, we see it and we remember the covenant, but God says when I see the, the bow in the sky, I will remember the covenant that I made with you. I love that. That's really interesting to me. We, can, we could really dig into that and understand some implications about, about that, but we won't this evening. But the five particular covenants that we are discussing as far as the kingdom covenants are concerned are... The Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Palestinian Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and then the New Covenant. And we talked about those first three last week, Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Palestinian. And as we talked about these, uh, Palestinian often simply called the Land Covenant as well, remember, simply because the nation of Palestine today is, is a nation that is uh, wholly opposed to Israel. As a matter of fact, they exist effectively to destroy Israel. And we recognize that Palestine as a nation today has, has uh, no part in God's promises except for the promise of destruction of Israel's enemies. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the land which formerly was designated the land of Palestine. And so as we considered these three covenants last week, we learned that God's, the first thing that we learned, and this is essential, we need to remember this here, we remember that God's spiritual covenants, and each one of these was a spiritual covenant, though I had physical aspects, God's spiritual covenants must always be initiated by faith. So God gave the covenants, but in order for uh, the people to enter into the covenant, whether that's Abraham or whether that is Israel, they had to enter in by faith. They had to exercise their faith unto God, and as they exercised their faith unto God, they qualified themselves to enter into these covenants. Even the unconditional covenants, no conditions upon which to receive all of the blessings as far as works, had to be entered into 
by faith. When they put their faith, when Abraham believed God, it was counted unto him for righteousness. And then after Abraham believed God in Genesis 15, God initiated the covenant with Abraham, whereby they cut the animals in half, put them on the sides. God walked through. We talked about all of that. So we found in the Abrahamic covenant that, that this covenant contained three primary unconditional promises. No conditions. A land promise, a blessing promise, and a seed promise. That as God chose Abraham, his lineage became the bearers of this covenant. We learned how God gave them then a conditional covenant. And that conditional covenant was the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, intended by God to guide them into the maturity of Messiah. But that they instead lost focus. They treated the Mosaic covenant as a framework for, the, for their redemption instead of treating the Mosaic covenant as a framework because of their redemption. They were a redeemed people. They had been redeemed from Egypt. They had been called out of Egypt. They had gone through the Red Sea. They had exercised faith. They had been redeemed. And the Mosaic Law was given to them as a redeemed people to lead them into maturity, right? But what they did is they took the Mosaic Law and they turned it into the means by which they began to see it as the means by which they would be redeemed. Something that God never intended the law to be. And this was not a problem with the Mosaic Law itself. This was not a deficiency in the law. It highlighted instead a problem with us. A problem with man, right? And that problem is that we are sinners. And this needs to be dealt with before we can fully obey, before we can fully please God. But of course, as we look at that, we, we recognize that we can't deal with our own sin. And this is where the Mosaic Covenant truly fell short, right? The Mosaic Covenant provided a framework for maturity, but it couldn't provide full redemption. It couldn't provide atonement. It, couldn't, it could provide a temporary covering, but not a complete remission of sins. And we talked about that last week. We moved on next to the land covenant, thank you, Sarah, to the Palestinian covenant, another unconditional covenant given to the second generation of Israel just before entering the land. Now remember, the Abrahamic promise, unconditional. The Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic promise, was conditional. It was a conditional covenant that was meant to, as it were, we might say, babysit the people until Christ came, until Messiah came, to give them a means by which to access the promises of God until they could truly, fully realize the promises of God through Messiah. The Palestinian covenant was another unconditional covenant, not given to the first generation, but rather to the second generation in Israel. And in it, they were promised that they would rebel against God. Remember reading that in Deuteronomy 29 and 30 last week? He, God says, you will rebel against us, against me. You will forsake me, and I will scatter you among the nations. And then God promised that they would eventually be regathered, brought back to Israel, that God would give them a new heart, that God would redeem them internally, and then after he gives them a new heart, then they can truly receive the land and the blessings that he's promised to them. And we recognize the Palestinian covenant or the land covenant to be an extension of God's promise 
to Abraham of the land, as we see up there. But again, we recognize that this land promise was closely linked to the Mosaic Covenant. Because in that covenant was the means by which the nation was to show their faith. So as they obeyed the Mosaic Covenant, they would express the faith necessary to receive the Palestinian Covenant, to receive the blessing and the land. And this leads us to today. We're going to discuss the final two covenants this evening, the Davidic Covenant, and then finally the New Covenant. Now, the Davidic Covenant is the one that started this journey, right? We got into 2 Samuel 7. I taught you about the promise. We kind of didn't focus on it. But it started this journey for me to highlight for you what these covenants are. We find that in 2 Samuel. A promise is given to David in regard to his lineage. And to refresh our minds, let's go through a few of those verses again together in 2 Samuel 7, beginning of verse 12. The Bible says, And when thy days be fulfilled... And thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. This is God speaking to David through Nathan. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. There had never been a question all the way back, all the way back to the promises that God made to Abraham that God's kingdom, the kingdom that he was promising, would be administered through kings. In fact, God told Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 6, that kings would come from him. And so there was never a question that that through Abraham's lineage, kings would arise. Uh, Israel, the man Israel, prophesied to his son Judah that the scepter would never depart out of Judah, right? And so as he promised this, it, it, it was recognized. It was understood that there would be kings that would arise in, in Israel, that the nation would eventually be led by a king. And the promise was that there would ne- never cease to be a king on the throne of Israel or of Judah until, a king from Judah on the throne, there we go, until Shiloh came, who we recognize to be Messiah. And when Messiah came, he would establish that eternal throne. Now, as God makes this promise to David, he creates an unconditional covenant with him. Not based upon David's actions, not based upon circumstances, that would establish David's line as the earthly, kingly line, eternal kingly line in Israel. The line through whom Israel's rulers would come. Now, it had already been well established at this point that when Messiah was to come, he was coming to rule in righteousness. This would be even deeper established in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. We would see more prophecies of of the kingly nature of Messiah. But make no mistake, in David's day, they fully expected Messiah to come and to rule and to reign in righteousness, to be a king over the nation of Israel. 
And so if David is promised that there would never cease to be a ruler on the throne in Israel that was not connected to him through lineage, then what David recognized and what God was actually doing when he promised David what he promised was promising that through David would come the Messiah. And that's, that's significant. For David, that was so significant. And the difference between the prophecies of Messiah before the Davidic covenant and after the Davidic covenant is simply that following this covenant, it is understood from, from this point on, the prophets make it clear that Messiah would come through David. Before this point, Messiah would come. He would come to rule and reign. After this point, he will come to rule and reign as the lineage of David. And we see this in Jeremiah 33, where Jeremiah writes this in verses 25 and 26. Thus saith the Lord, If my covenant be not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then will I cast away the seed of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I have caused their captivity to return and have had mercy upon them. God says, if, if I have made a covenant with day and night, or if I have not made a covenant with day and night, if day and night aren't on a cycle, if there isn't consistency, then I'll forsake David. Effectively, he's saying, because the sun rises every morning and sets every evening, you can rest assured my promises to David will stand. So in Genesis 4, we learn that Messiah would come through Seth, right? Adam and Eve have two children, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Seth is born, and Eve looks at Seth and says, the Lord has given me another seed in place of Abel. What was she saying there? Not just that she had another child. He was the seed. He was the child through whom Messiah would come. Genesis 4, we learn that Messiah would come through Seth. Genesis 12, we learn that Messiah would come through Abraham. In Genesis 17, we learn that Messiah would come through Isaac. In Genesis 25, we learn that Messiah would come through Jacob. In Genesis 49, we learn that Messiah would come through Judah. See how we're kind of whittling down the lineage? And then in 2 Samuel 7, we learn that Messiah will come through David. Even more importantly, however, is what the Davidic covenant establishes concerning the character of Messiah's kingdom. So the Messiah, he's coming through David's line and David is blown away by this. Have you ever had a great honor placed upon you or your family and you just sit there and you go, wow, wow. And you are humbled and amazed at this circumstance that speaks to you or speaks well of you or speaks to your, uh, the end of hard, hard work or, or, or the end of all of your effort and you receive a great honor and you just don't know what to say. That's the idea here of what David received. God tells David, not only will, will, will there never cease to be one of your lineage on the throne of Israel, but then David feels the full weight of the fact that God has just chosen him, his line, to be the messianic line. And David is deeply humbled and awed by that. But the character of Messiah's kingdom, 
when Jesus walked upon this earth for the first time, as the son of David, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He was not there to overthrow kings. He was not there to set up a physical throne of his own. At least not yet. But the fact that Jesus is the son of David, that he is prophesied to sit on the throne of David, is another reminder that there is a physical kingdom coming. The character of Christ's kingdom, though we haven't realized it yet, does have a physical aspect to it. David was a physical king over a physical kingdom. And if Jesus is the son of David, set to establish the throne of David forever, should we not expect that he will rule as his father did over the nation of Israel? And so we read that God would establish a lineage of physical descendants from David's line. And as we considered in our exposition a couple of weeks ago of 2 Samuel 7, those descendants, God promised, would sin. And though there might be some temporary interruptions in their rule over the nation because of their sinful choices, God would never remove his blessing from David's house and give it to another line. And this assurance was necessary because of what David had experienced with King Saul, right? King Saul had been removed. His, not just him, his entire family had been removed from the privilege of the kingly line. And so David was receiving assurances here, not just of his family, but also that God would never remove David from the kingly line as he removed Saul from the kingly line. All throughout scriptures, we can read of the promises of the Davidic covenant, revealing just how important it is. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Zechariah, Matthew, Luke, all reference the promises given to David of the lineage of Messiah. We won't get into all of these passages today, of course, but they really are everywhere. And they all point to a physical king giving hope to Israel, even in their days of exile, that God would be faithful to carry out his covenant and the promises that he had made to the line of David, and that this lineage of David would eventually rule from Israel upon an eternal throne. And we learned several weeks ago in our Luke study, the fact that Jesus was of the house and lineage of David was essential to his identity as Messiah. He had to be there or else he was not Messiah. So it is we find, as we did with the land, that the blessing of God to Abraham of a seed is expanded through the Davidic covenant. Do you see how it all kind of connects together? Three promises given to Abraham. The land, the seed, and the blessing. The land covenant is uh, the Palestinian covenant highlights or or, um, expands upon the promise of Abraham of the land. The Davidic covenant expands upon the promise of God of the seed. And we see the blessing found expanded upon temporarily through the Mosaic covenant as that is the one through whom the blessing would come. And just as with the Palestinian covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, 
there's a temporary link between the Davidic covenant and the law of Moses. As the kingly line would be what we call the theocratic, theocratic meaning a government or a nation that is led by God, the king would become the theocratic administrator of the kingdom of God. That for a time, the Davidic line would be the ones through whom God's kingdom was directed. And as such, the king was designated as the guy who was supposed to lead the nation into the obedience to the Mosaic law. Now, the conditions upon which the kings of Israel were judged by God are contained in the law itself. And Deuteronomy 17 laid down four conditions by which the king was supposed to rule. Condition number one, he should not multiply to himself horses out of Egypt. Condition number two, he should not multiply unto himself wives. Condition number three, he should not multiply unto himself silver and gold. Condition number four, he should, every king was supposed to write out a copy of the law and was supposed to read it all the days of his life in order that he would keep the law of God. Now interesting, as I give those conditions, really the pinnacle of the rebellion to these conditions was found in Solomon, wasn't it? He multiplied, as a matter of fact, he specifically sent to Egypt to get horses. He multiplied wives to a ridiculous degree. He multiplied silver and gold so much so that, that they said that, that silver were as the stones in the street. And in each of these, he, he was the greatest transgressor, which is very interesting. But the duties of the king were prescribed in the law. And one of those duties was to read and to obey the law. So we see the king... And the promise here diverted through the law, just as the land promise was diverted through the law. Everything is diverted through the Mosaic Covenant temporarily. But I remind you again that though the covenants themselves, with, with the unique exception of the Mosaic Covenant, are all unconditional, we must understand that each one of these was entered into, each one of the men or the people that received these unconditional promises entered into their conditions or lack thereof by faith. Faith is what brought them into the covenant relationship with God. And this concept of entering into the covenant by faith became a big, big problem in Israel's history. Because rather than seeking the blessings of God through faith, unto obedience of the Mosaic Covenant, the nation of Israel has, for the past several thousand years, sought the blessing of God through the law at the expense of faith. And this is the problem. This has been the problem. Because they made the law the means by which they received their redemption, not the means by which they lived out their redemption they elevated the law to be their God rather than using the law to serve their God. We can do this too, right? We can elevate standards 
to be our God instead of using those standards to serve our God. We can elevate a checklist Christianity to be the means by which we feel we are redeemed rather than using uh, some measure of expectations or routines or, or religious expectations in order to guide us into our love for God. And that's what Israel did. That's what they fell prey to. And in Romans chapter 9, we see a discussion of this. Paul says this, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained unto the, to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. They saw the law. They said, aha, I can do this. I can become worthy of God. Uh-uh. But they tried. But they, they failed to be able to enter, into the, to, to enter into these promises and these blessings because they didn't enter in by faith. And faith is the means by which any man enters into any of the spiritual promises of God, regardless of what kind of physical outworking there was. And, and so perhaps you do see the problem with this. God has made unconditional and eternal promises to the nation. They are unconditional. They are eternal. They must come to pass. God made promises to Abraham that must come to pass. God heightened those promises through the Palestinian covenant to the second generation of Israel. He heightened that promise to David through the Davidic covenant. These promises must come to pass. There must be an eternal king on the throne in Israel. There must be a time where Israel is, is, is scattered, then regathered, then given new heart, then given the land of Israel. There must be land, a seed, and a blessing. These things must come to pass. But they can't come to pass because Israel isn't walking by faith. The nation of Israel has failed to follow God in faith so God cannot, in His justice, according to His design, allow the blessings to be poured out upon His people. And this means that the nation must undergo a fundamental transformation in character. A change from sin and self-righteousness to obedience and faith before God can give them the blessings which He has unconditionally promised to give them. Now, the Mosaic Law proved that, they, that man could not achieve this place of blessing on his own. His sin nature rules him too strongly for him to change himself from the outside in. You can't change the outside and expect the inside to get clean. I don't know if you have ever tried to do that, washing dishes. Just clean the outsides of the cups and set them down and expect the insides to be clean. Uh, try it. Try it for a week. Just, just one week and see how that goes. You'll find it doesn't... Uh, Robin's shaking her head. You'll, you'll, you'll find out it's not going to work real well for you, right? It's not going to work, work real well just to clean the outside of the cup and to expect the inside, the outside cleanliness to work its way in, right? The inside needed to be cleansed. And so this sin nature had to be dealt with, removed from the equation in order that God might fulfill the promises which he had made to Abraham and to his descendants. Enter the final covenant on our list, the new covenant. The final covenant we find in God's kingdom program, again, not all the covenants, just his kingdom covenants, the covenant known as the new covenant. 
The new covenant was a covenant prophesied of by God in the Old Testament designed to replace the Mosaic covenant and position the nation to receive the unconditional blessings which it had been promised. And we read about the new covenant specifically in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. I've preached through Ezekiel, uh, so if, if you remember it or if, if you want to go back to that Ezekiel 36 message, you can learn there about some of the d- dynamics of the new covenant. We're going to read the Jeremiah passage. Verses 31 to 34, God says this, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them out of the, uh, out, I took them, excuse me, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband to them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God promises that He is going to make a new covenant with them, with the nation of Israel, with Israel and Judah, Scriptures tell us, which would, on the testimony of Scripture, be be different in character from the Mosaic Covenant. And in it, He promises to place His law, that would be the law of God, inside of them to write it on their hearts, a poetic way of saying that they would know God's expectations and want to obey them from the inside out, not just from the outside in. And he promises to open up the fullness of this relationship with them where he would be their God and they would be his people. And at that time, God says, all will know him. All of their sins would be forgiven and would be remembered no more. Now, far from the temporary atonements of the Old Testament sacrificial system, there are promises here of complete remission of sin, not just covering, remission, removal. And when God writes His law upon His hearts, this would take place. We read more of these promises in Jeremiah 32, 27-42, of Ezekiel 16, 60 to 62, Ezekiel 36, 24 to 32, all of these promises to, the, to Israel and Judah, to the house of Israel and of Judah, that there was coming a day of forgiveness, a day when they would finally have what they desired. They would have within them the desire and the capacity to obey God as God had always asked them to do. Now it's important to note the context within which all of these prophecies were given. God had declared to them their sin and was now in the process of sending them into captivity. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, this was the time of God sending the people into captivity. God had declared to them their wickedness. Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. By Ezekiel 36's time, it had been destroyed. The nation had lost its identity 
And in the midst of these terrible judgments, the prophets were given a message of hope, a message of promise, that God Himself would undo all of the problems which Israel had gotten themselves into. That this new covenant would be established, not a conditional covenant, not one in which they had to do the work, an unconditional covenant. A covenant of, of unconditional in nature that would replace this conditional covenant. A covenant that didn't ask them to do the work because God would place within them a new heart whereby they would do by default what right now they couldn't. It would enable them to walk in obedience and experience the blessings of all of the other unconditional covenants. And so we must contrast this new covenant and its expectations with the expectations of the old covenant. Both covenants condition blessing upon the reality of obedience. We have spoken of this already. No spiritual covenant is enacted without faith. Obey in faith to be blessed. But the second point shows the real difference here. Whereas the Mosaic Covenant left the accomplishment of this obedience to the individuals of the nation, the New Covenant promised that God would do the work. That God would enable them to have the faith and the obedience necessary. So God would enable them to obey and then He would bless them for their obedience. Have you ever noticed that that's how God works? That God gives you the strength and the ability to do what you need to do. And then when you do what you're supposed to do in His power, He blesses you for it. Likewise, the Mosaic Covenant had always been very conditional and temporal in scope. But the New Covenant would be unconditional and eternal. Now we haven't read proof of this yet. Let's do that now. As we consider this list, what proof is there that this new covenant would have all of these benefits? I take you back to Jeremiah 31 where we read in verses 35 and 36, Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of a moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord of hosts is His name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. God promises that, these, that this covenant would create a perpetual seed in Israel. The new heart which God would give would exist into eternity the eternal nature of the new covenant. And as we consider this covenant, we understand that it was made possible by the finished work of Jesus Christ. How is it that God could, in justice and in righteousness, allow for sinful men to receive the very fullest of spiritual blessings? Well, the Mosaic Law tried to allow man to do it himself. Right? Allow a man to enter into this covenant by faith and then through the law, obey the law, get the blessings. They couldn't do it. It demonstrated that we in and of ourselves have no capacity to align ourselves with God unto the spiritual blessings that God has for us. 
What provision could be made so that God could forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more? A just God cannot ignore sin. So something must be put in place whereby man's sin can be eternally paid for by someone other than himself. The law attempted to solve this problem through the blood of calves and of goats. But it didn't work. Because it was only temporary. Right? The high priest is there killing the animal. Blood is pouring out on the altar. Can you imagine how bloody of a place that temple mount must have been? Blood everywhere. Priests wore white to do that work. I'd imagine they were getting new garments quite often. And as all of this blood is pouring out, the people are rejoicing that their sins have been atoned. And they turn to leave the Temple Mount. And as they leave the Temple Mount, maybe that guy has a wicked thought about his neighbor. Oh, I have to go back to that guy. Or maybe that mother starts thinking about what her kids did today and there's a little bitterness in her heart. And immediately, they need another calf to be killed on their behalf again because the atonement was for the sins that they had already committed, not for the sins they would commit. Immediately again, they're in a place where they need another calf. Could you imagine the frustration of that? They probably couldn't get to the end of a sacrificial day without recognizing the need for another calf to be killed, another lamb to be killed for their sin. So it didn't work because the atonement was only temporary. The people would have to perpetually return to the altar, kill more animals to pay for their continual sin. And so we read in Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, that's the one day of atonement, uh, on top of all of the other ones, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they, have ceased to be, uh, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. But we skip from verse 4 to verse 14, where in relation to Christ, we read this. For by one offering, He, Christ, hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. No no guilt. No condemnation. We talked about this just a couple weeks ago. Guilt and condemnation for sin are not from the Lord. Ever. If you live under guilt or condemnation of sin, you are not taking full advantage of what Christ has purchased for you. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Because there is no conscience of sins. It's all under the blood. Paid for in Christ. No guilt. Conviction, yes. Guilt, condemnation, no. 
the connection with Jesus Christ in Hebrews is pervasive. In Hebrews 8, 7 through 13, the writer actually quotes Jeremiah 31, declaring that Jesus is the mediator of that new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah 31. Jesus is the mediator of that new covenant. He's the one that secured that, the, the capacity for us to have that new covenant. We won't read it today. I encourage you, though, to do a study on it sometime. I would like us to read one more connection, however. At the end of Jesus' life, as he positioned himself to the cross, the scriptures tell us he sat down with his disciples to eat a meal. And during this meal, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Declaring that he would be bruised, that he would be broken, enduring the wrath of God against sin. He would say, this is the, my blood which was shed for you when he took the cup. And he would say this in Matthew 26, 27, and 28. Matthew 26, verse 27 and 28. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the... New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission, the remission of sins. The word New Testament there is literally New Covenant. When Abraham and God made their unconditional covenant, remember, Abraham cut the animals in half, he put them on the hill, all the blood drained into the bottom of the hill. God put Abraham to sleep and God himself individually walked through that blood to state that this covenant that God made with Abraham was one-sided. God was obligating himself. Abraham had no obligation. When God made the unconditional covenant with all who would believe this new covenant unto salvation, it too was sealed with blood. Unconditional, one-sided covenant where the Lord himself and the Lord alone hung on that cross and his blood was shed, and as his blood poured upon the ground, God said, I have promises for you if you will enter into them by faith. And upon the shedding of blood, this new covenant was established. That's what happens when we partake of the Lord's table together. We are remembering Jesus being the initiator as well as the mediator of the new covenant. The terms of the covenant? Well, Jesus gave those in John three sixteen to 18. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He came to give them an unconditional covenant of redemption. Here's the terms. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's the condition of the covenant. Now, of course, we have discussed before what it means to believe. It's not just mental assent. It's not just knowing that Jesus was a person. It's fully investing in, placing your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection everything that he said and everything he claimed to be. And once the new covenant is in place, 
The whole picture comes together. The Mosaic Covenant being but a shadow of things to come. It was intended to be a schoolmaster, a babysitter. It was intended to keep Israel in a place where they could be the recipient of some of these blessings until such time as God secured for them the means by which to fully receive them. The New Covenant is God's divine plan for bringing about the promises which he promised to Abraham of the land, the seed, and the blessing. And not just upon Israel, but upon the whole world. Now the question becomes, where do we fit in? But, but first, think about this. Within the scope of these covenants, we have land, seed, blessing, Abrahamic covenant, Palestinian covenant, Davidic covenant, all merging into the new covenant. All unconditional promises. And as each man, woman entered into these promises by faith, God says, I'll do the rest of the work. It's God from beginning to end. God gives us the means by which to receive the blessings. God gives us the blessings. He has obligated Himself to us apart from anything on our end. But faith. Where do we fit in? We aren't the seed of Israel physically. How does the new covenant relate to us? You know, all throughout the Old Testament, it was promised that Messiah would draw the Gentile world to Him. We read it in Isaiah 11.10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, Jesse being David's father, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. But when we continue the study, we find the intrigue goes even deeper. After Jesus died on the cross, his apostles began through the Holy Spirit, to understand the fullest implications of the new covenant. They realized that it was appointed of God for this season that the nation of Israel as a whole was actually appointed to reject Messiah when he first arrived. Now, of course, this doesn't mean God caused them to reject him, but that God knew, and the circumstances were right, whereby when God came into this world, Israel rejected him. Israel rejected Christ as their Messiah. And why would God do that? Why would God allow the course of history to be woven in such a way that when the Messiah finally came, Israel would, the nation, would reject him? And we learn why in Romans 11. In this chapter, Paul is speaking of the nation of Israel not receiving the promises of Messiah, save for a remnant. We learned in our Second Peter study on Tuesday night, a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus is the stumbling stone to those who don't believe. The message of the gospel of grace was offensive to the Jews, and indeed is still offensive to the Jews, who are deeply self-righteous, and thus they reject the righteousness which is by faith. But in God's wisdom, this rejection, which we know to be prophesied, because we saw it in the Palestinian covenant, right? God promised they would. God promised they would be scattered. This rejection has been used by God to open up the gospel, to open the new covenant to the world. So Paul would say in Romans 11:11, I say then, have they, that's the nation of Israel, stumbled that they should fall? 
God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. The fall of Israel from their elected purpose caused God to give their election to another group of people made up of both Jews and Gentiles, enabled by God's Spirit to fulfill the purpose that Israel had been ordained to accomplish, namely to be rightly related to God, so that they could show the world how to be rightly related to God. And Paul would go on to say in Romans 11.25, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, lest ye should get proud. That blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. There is a blindness that is given to Israel, and notice it's until. It's temporary. We saw that in the Palestinian covenant, right? God promised that from the scattering there would be a time where their hearts would be regathered to Israel, and then God would redeem them, give them new hearts, and then finally give them the blessing. Once every Gentile that will come to the faith does come to the faith, God will reinitiate his program with Israel and finish what he began. So where does this leave everyone today? Well, here's the summary. Everyone who enters into any of God's blessings does so by accepting those blessings on faith. And as we see it today, we recognize that anyone who will receive any of God's spiritual blessings must go through the new covenant secured through the blood of Jesus Christ. For we who are in this age and in this time, the new covenant ushers us into the church, which is a redeemed body of believers who are in Christ. We live this life as kingdom citizens in a dark world. Not serving a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. Our priorities rest upon that spiritual kingdom. Our obedience is to that spiritual king, who is Christ. One day we will die, and we will go to live with Christ. Or Christ will return, and we will go to live with Christ. Once Christ has gathered his church in full, he will initiate his program, reinitiate his program with Israel. God never promised to physically rule over the church, only over Israel. So once Israel receives the promises of the Palestinian covenant and that they're given this new heart by believing on the name of Jesus Christ, by accepting the new covenant in Christ's blood, the nation will be ushered into, as we've talked about uh, before, a thousand-year reign of Christ over them on the throne of David. During this time, the nation will yet have uh, physical bodies as they entered into that time physically, and they will be ruled over by Christ and his church. 2 Timothy 2.12 tells us that we, if we have suffered with Christ, then we will likewise reign with him. We will reign with him. Reign over who? Well, reign over the nation and over the nations in the millennial reign. And so the church will rule with Christ as he fulfills his final covenant promises to the nation of Israel. After which all of Christ's enemies will be forever removed to the lake of fire. New Jerusalem will descend from heaven. And the redeemed of the Lord will live with God forever. And so we see that the church has been ushered into the blessings of Israel. These 
kingdom covenants have brought have culminated in the new covenant directing us into Jesus Christ every promise to the nation of Israel will be, will be fulfilled the new covenant being God's divine plan to do that while in his wisdom also allowing us to be partakers and so as we close a couple of thoughts first thought being this As we read in 2nd Samuel 7, we see and we'll see it again in in a few weeks uh, beginning next week we'll start our family emphasis time from next week all the way till Father's Day 6 full weeks I'll be preaching every morning and evening message on the family but after that we're going to jump into 2nd Samuel again and we'll learn about David's response which is one of deep deep praise And now that we have seen how all of the covenants connect to one another, you can see just how important that moment is in David's life and in the kingdom. The moment when God placed a milestone, a marker that said this is what I'm doing and David, you have the privilege of being a major part in the redemption of the world. But as we consider our part in this we as god's church as those who have received for this time the elected purpose of shining forth the light of christ into this world we are reminded through the kingdom covenants that we are a part of a spiritual kingdom the kingdom is not of this world the kingdoms of this world boy they're a mess aren't they It's just a mess. It's not going to get any prettier come November. But we are part of a different kingdom. A spiritual kingdom. That kingdom, that spiritual kingdom, those are our priorities. That's where our loyalties lie. That's where the principles that we live by are founded. We come here every week and we meet with the citizens of that kingdom. and we drink of the oasis of peace and of rest to go back out and be ambassadors in a foreign land for our king and that's the life we live and that's the privilege that we have until the day when we get to go home and there is coming a day when we get to go home but until that day we are the representatives of God's kingdom on this earth. Israel has been set aside for a time. We have been brought into its place to represent God through Christ to this world, which means we have a job to do. Let's not be deficient. Let's not be seen wanting, lacking, ignorant or lazy or apathetic to the job which God has called us to do, to be his kingdom representatives. until he takes us home. Let's close in prayer.